along to Isaiah 61. We'll get there in a few moments. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. The title of the message this morning is Christ our righteousness. Christ our righteousness. Won't you say that with me? Christ our righteousness. It's actually been in my heart for a few months now that we would speak on this. Sorry, just a technical point. Camera one, you need to lower your tripod, please. Thank you. Christ our righteousness. It's been a few weeks now that this has been even months on my heart, and I've had a sense that this is what we need to be speaking about at some time. But also just to say that I have found it quite a little challenging, let's put it that way, as I've looked into the subject to try to make it simple. I like what Billy Graham says. He says, I study to make things simple. And I believe that's what pastors and what preachers should do. We should make things simple so that people can understand it with ease. And I was looking through different people's notes and commentaries and things as I was busy preparing uh, for today and all sorts of things that get said. And through it all, I trust that the Lord helps me to make it simple. And I believe that this is a message that can be tremendously encouraging to all of us. As we begin to learn that we don't have to live with this cloud over our heads and this sense of guilt and this sense of shame, it is indeed a wonderful thing. Sadly, many Christians still live with a sense of guilt and shame and they walk around in condemnation even though the scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's important that we discover what God's word says. You could have been alive for many years and you could have served God for many years and still not understand what righteousness is about. And instead of that cloud of guilt and shame, we can live with an awareness of our righteousness in Christ. I wonder if you already live with that awareness. If it's affected your mind to the point where it's changed even your behavior. Now, the scripture is Isaiah 61 verse 10. It is on your screen as well, but if you have your Bible, have a look at it in your Bible. Isaiah 61 verse 10, reading from the New King James Version, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Would you say those three words? Garments of salvation. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He has clothed you with garments of salvation. And then it says, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Would you say righteousness? You know, we sing that song that's called Your Majesty. In royal robes, I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. These royal robes, I believe you can find a scriptural basis for it in Isaiah 61. They are royal robes of righteousness. Yet we, yes, we don't deserve them, but God in his grace has allowed us to be clothed in these robes. And so this verse that is on your screen is actually a prophetic verse of what God has wanted to do all along. In fact, 
This verse comes from approximately 2,700 years ago, in the time of Isaiah. And in the time of Isaiah, God declared, he foretold that he planned to clothe you and me with righteousness. It was his intention. It was his plan. And so if we allow him to do that, then we are coming into agreement with God. We're experiencing what God wants for us. But if we say no, 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 and, and, and don't allow it to come into our hearts, then we can live far below the poverty line, spiritual poverty line, so to speak. Now, let's look at a few aspects regarding the righteousness of God and God's plan for righteousness. There are four points that I'd like to share with you. Number one, God is holy and righteous. Please say that with me. God is holy and righteous. Now, you might say, well, I know this very well. I understand it. But I think for a departure point for this message, we need to look at this a little bit more closely and let it be magnified a fraction more. We need to look at a definition of righteousness. If somebody was to say to you, hey, what is righteousness? Would you be able to answer them? Well, the answer to the question, what is righteousness, the Webster's Dictionary gives a very, very good uh, definition. It says this, this is righteousness. To act in accord with divine or moral law, to be free from guilt or sin. It's a very good definition. Let me say that again. To act in accord with divine or moral sin, and to be free, sorry, to act in accord with divine or moral law, and to be free from guilt or sin. That's what righteousness is. I heard somebody say, what is the opposite of righteousness? And it is wrongsciousness. <laughs> but yeah, it kind of helps you to understand something. Now, let me say that in terms of righteousness, you see, essentially, God's laws and his character are the plumb line. Let me say that again. God's laws and his character, who he is, is the plumb line of righteousness. And he measures human righteousness according to his plumb line, not anybody else's. That's why it's important that laws are determined out of the basis of the word of God, because this is our plumb line. Now, you might not have seen a plumb line. I can remember years ago, my dad working on a little cottage on our farm, and he was busy building this cottage. It was a, a big story. Uh, and the wall got built, and some of the work was done when he was away for a few hours, and the wall ended up being skewed. It was one of the inter in internal walls next to the kitchen. It ended up skewed. My dad didn't even need a plumb line. He took one to look at this, and he said, this wall is coming down. And he said, break it down. Got to build it again. Got to have a straight wall. And I thought to myself, I was a little chap. I thought, you know, Dad, they've worked hard. They built the wall. You know what's going on? And my dad said, no, the wall's got to be straight. Otherwise, forever, you look at this thing and it looks wrong. And also, it's not as strong as it should be if it's that way. So what is a plumb line? A plumb line is a cord or a line. And at the one end of it is a heavy thing that is attached to it. It's called a, a plumb bob. Actually, a plumb bob. That's from Bob the Builder, but you don't quote me on that one. So you've got the line and you've got the plumb bob at the bottom, and you hold it, 
And it is used to determine verticality. It's used to determine that structures are vertical because if you hold it next to the wall that's just been built and you give it a moment just to settle down, then you can see, is the wall straight next to this plumb line? Not only is it straight, but is it true? Now, God's laws and his character are the plumb line. And he measures according to his standard, his plumb line. Revelation 4 verse 8, the following scripture says the following, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day and night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I'm quoting the scripture to highlight for you the holiness of God. I mean, to repeat it, holy, 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 why not just say it once? Imagine if you've got a friend, and this person is a friendly friend, and you introduce them to another buddy of yours, and hey, this is Joe, friendly, 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 friendly Joe. That would seem a little strange. But because of God's holiness, it is worth saying it again. It's worth repeating it because it's so marvelous, His holiness. Now, in terms of this scripture, here we see a picture into heaven of some interesting angelic creatures, living creatures that are around God and they are seeing the revelation of his holiness and they are declaring this. Now, just how holy is God? I'd like to try to describe it to you through perhaps a little illustration. Some years ago, I was in the UK and there was a worship leader, worship pastor that was giving a session to a whole bunch of us worship guys that were there. And he said, you know what? I have made the study of angels my pursuit. He says, for 10 years, I have studied angels from a biblical point of view. I've read everything in the Bible in detail. I've read all the commentaries. I've read many different Christian books about angels because, I don't know, God just gave me a passion to study angels. I've never heard of anybody that made it their passion for 10 years. Let me tell you, after 10 years of studying something, I reckon you begin to be a little bit of an expert on it. And he was commenting about this scene in Revelation 4 where the living creatures are crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy. And he was saying, folks, you have to understand, they are not programmed to do that. It's not as though God said, okay, you all four there, and then you take a turn and you take a turn. When I press play, then you say, holy, holy, holy. And then the next one, okay, now it's your turn, holy, holy, holy. It's not that they are programmed to do it. And he said, but here it is. You have, let's say, one living creature with eyes all over their body or their wings and so on, as the scripture says. And as they're looking at the Almighty One, as they're looking at the Lamb, they cannot help but to shout out, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the other one on the other side gets this moment of the glimpse of another aspect of God's holiness. And he says, yes, I saw it. <laughs> and he has to cry out as well. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the next one. And it goes on and on like this. And next thing they see another facet of the holiness of God. And they are enthralled in the moment they cannot keep quiet. And they cry out one to another, Holy is the Lord God Almighty 
who was. Come on. Holy is the Lord who was and is and is to come. And I believe that this is what is going down in heaven. Because he is so holy, so indescribably holy, so awesomely, tremendously, wonderfully holy, that his holiness will be an eternal revelation as we see him. And one day you and I, folks, we're going to join in that whole experience as we see and also declare with the song of the redeemed that holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, because of that characteristic of holiness, he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He is holy. He cannot be indifferent to sin. He cannot treat it lightly. He simply has to condemn sin. That is the outflow of the righteous Lamb of God. And since God is holy, he cannot allow sinners into his presence. And because we are all sinners, we cannot come into God's presence unless there is some supernatural transformation that takes place first, and then we can come into his presence. But let me tell you, God wants every one of us in his presence, and that's why he brought about the opportunity of supernatural transformation 1 Peter 1 verse 15 is on your screen. It says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So here, God clearly instructs to us that we are to be holy. Would you please say to the next person next to you, God says you need to be holy. I say it with a smile, please. God says you need to be holy. Now, think about this. This is one of the most astounding requirements that God expects of us. Here, we mere mortals, if I can put it that way, God says we need to be holy. The pressure's on. <laughs> you know? This is an astounding, overwhelming kind of expectation. But let me tell you, God would never expect you to be something that you are not capable of being by Him and by Christ. He would never expect that. It would be unfair of God for us to expect us to be holy without making it possible. But through the intervention of the cross, it is possible. Can you say amen? amen. Now, point number two, our human struggle, the sin problem. In looking at righteousness, we need to also look at the sin problem and, and the struggle that you and I all face. And it says in Romans 3, verse 10 and verse 23, it says, For there is none righteous. Would you say none righteous? No, not one. And if you jump down to verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, there we were, fallen short of the glory of God, and let me tell you, when God shoots the arrow, he intends it to hit the bull's eye, but we have fallen short of the bull's eye. We haven't hit the glory of God, but it's not just falling short. It's when you don't hit the bull's eye, you hit something else. It's called sin. It's called a sinful nature. And we have fallen short of the bull's eye of the glory of God. And now we have a problem, a sinful nature to deal with. And there we were, you and I all dead in our sin and trespasses. What were we? We were essentially helpless. 
in our situation. And God's requirements for righteousness, together with our inability to be able to save ourselves, leaves us in a huge predicament. (laughs) It's a big problem. And this is the very problem that every human being faces. How do you deal with the sin and the guilt and the condemnation? This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem that virtually every religion in the world tries to address. They try to come up with some sort of a solution of how you can deal with these feelings of guilt and sin and shame. And no other religion except for Jesus Christ and Christianity can provide the solution to the guilt problem. Can I get an amen? amen? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into relationship with the Father but by me. But there we sat with this huge problem. God expects righteousness. We are helpless. What can we do? I was listening to a pastor a little while ago. A pastor in the city, Pastor Alan Platt. And believe it or not, as he was speaking, he was quoting a nursery rhyme in his message. And he said, but this nursery rhyme, and he speaks quite dramatically, he says, this nursery rhyme has deep spiritual significance. This is the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) Don't laugh now, don't laugh now. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. You know the nursery rhyme. If you don't, you had a stolen childhood. We'll pray for you afterwards, okay? So here we have this story. Poor old Humpty, he's broken, he's on the floor. He can't be put back together again. But isn't that such a picture of humanity? Think about it for a moment. We were all in the place that we should be, so to speak, in an elevated position. And we were enjoying fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden and things were as they should be. But then there came this great fall, the fall of mankind. And man ended up broken without a solution. Broken, life destroyed, in pieces, no solution. But what's this thing about all the king's horses? How can king's horses try to put you know, an egg together if Humpty is an egg? <laughs> how can king's horses and how can the king try to put it together? Well, essentially it's saying that even the best resources of a king, the king with all his resources, with all his expertise, cannot solve the problem and make man whole again. It doesn't matter who you are on the face of the world or how many people you've got working for you, how much money you have, how much medical expertise, scientific skill you have at your disposal. You cannot be made whole in human terms. All the king's horses and all the king's men, all the might of mankind cannot put you together again. Quite something. And here it is, folks. We cannot fix ourselves. But God can fix you and me. This is the incredible thing. We cannot fix ourselves. But yet, people are still trying to fix themselves. People still try to fix themselves all the time. But we have to realize that we cannot do it, that God has to do it. And if your life is broken and in pieces, I want to tell you that God can put you together. He can make you righteous. It says in Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And so even in our brokenness, God set a plan in motion to be able to redeem us. But in terms of the struggle, so often we sit with the struggle. And it's guilt, it's shame, it's condemnation, it's sin. And we sit with this and we don't know what to do with it. And let me tell you, the battle is very real. But oftentimes we are trying to fix ourselves. Let me tell you this. Listen very carefully. Too many people are trying to be good. Too many people are trying to be better. The issue is not about trying to be good, but it's about being in Christ. And he brings the goodness and the righteousness of God right into our situations. And we begin to live with a new reference because of what God has done. (laughs) And you might be so relating to this and you think, yeah, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be good. But it's about being in Christ. And then he helps you because then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it says, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, would you say in Christ? Say it a bit louder, please. In Christ, he is a new creation. There's the newness. There's the goodness. It's in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And let me tell you, Christianity is about discovering who you are in Christ. I'm so grateful to God that he intervened in our hopeless situation and he made a way where there seemed to be no way. Can somebody say praise the Lord? Lord. Now, number three, we are made righteous by faith in Christ and his cross. Can I invite you to say that with me? We are made righteous by faith in Christ and his cross. I'd like to share with you what I believe is One of the most important verses in Scripture, one of the most important for you to know and to believe, even to memorize, if you have your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Very important Scripture on the topic of righteousness. If you look uh, at anybody's notes regarding righteousness, you're going to discover this Scripture. And it says, for he, that is God the Father, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you see, what happened here is that Jesus became the sin offering on our behalf. This is the the good news of Jesus. He became the sin offering on our behalf. And also just to point out that Jesus never became sinful in himself on the cross. But our sins were placed upon him. Judicially speaking, our sins were placed upon him. So when it says he became sin, not in himself, but the sin was placed upon him, and therefore you say he became sin. Now, the same scripture in the uh, Amplified Bible, verse 21, reads as follows. It says, He made Christ, who knew no sin, judicially to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. 
in brackets it says behind righteousness of God, it says, that is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in right relationship with him by his gracious loving kindness. When I read that, I think to myself, what an awesome thing, God, that you have done in our lives. We should be eternally grateful to you. Now, there is an old-fashioned phrase that is often used when we talk around righteousness. The old-fashioned phrase or word is imputed, imputed righteousness. How many of you are familiar with the word imputed? Raise a hand if you've heard that word. Now, the word imputed essentially means to reckon, to ascribe, or to attribute something to somebody. So you reckon it to them. You ascribe it to them. But here's the significance, and I want to read it. The significance is that on the cross, our sins were imputed. They were reckoned. They were ascribed. They were attributed to Jesus. And then his perfect righteousness was imputed to us was ascribed to us, was attributed to us. And if that doesn't cause a little bit of joy in your heart, then nothing will. This is the incredible thing. Our sins were imputed to Christ Jesus. He took them from us. And Jesus' righteousness was imputed, was assigned to us, and that's why we can be declared in accordance with the scripture that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I want to say to you today, the good news is that we have become righteous. If that's not good news, then I don't know what is. Say to the person next to you, you are righteous in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. And we will never be able to thank God enough for his grace. Listen to this statement. When God declares you to be righteous, then that is what you are. And that is how he sees you. He sees the perfection of Christ in you, and he treats you as such. Just another scripture to back up what I'm saying, Romans 4.24. It says there, it, now the it in the context is righteousness. It, righteousness, shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So simply put, faith in God leads to righteousness. I want to ask you a question today. In your heart and in your life, do you desire the righteousness of God? We were talking earlier this year a lot about the kingdom of God, and it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, suddenly when we're talking about righteousness today, that takes on a new meaning. And, and basically, we need to realize that we can have this righteousness as we simply place our faith in Christ Jesus. So do you want the righteousness of Jesus and you say yes to that? Well, all you do is you simply place your faith. Not just initially on, in conversion, but on an ongoing basis. You continue to reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive indeed to God and walking in righteousness. Another scripture is Romans 3.22, it's on your screen, it says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the righteousness that you and I so desire is attained simply by just believing in Jesus. 
And this is not something you do, it's not something you earn. The scripture says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, this is a gift of God, according to Ephesians 2 verse 8. And do you know also according to Ephesians 5 verse 17, it says, speaks of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We many times talk about the gift of eternal life, but let me tell you that you have also received a gift of righteousness, and this changes our hearts and lives as we begin to live with this reference, as we begin to live with this realization. The last point, are you still with me? Please say amen if you're still with me. Number four, imputed righteousness is followed uh, is to be followed by right living. Won't you say that with me? Imputed righteousness is to be followed by right living. Now, imputed righteousness, imputed means it's ascribed, it's assigned, it's attributed to you. So once you have the righteousness of Jesus at the time of your salvation attributed to you, imputed to you, now you need to continue on in a certain kind of lifestyle. Because you have the righteousness of Jesus, it doesn't mean that, oh, now I can go about doing my life as simply as I please. I can do what I want. No. Jesus, the righteous one, has set the example for you in right living when he walked the earth. And now we should continue to walk rightly before the Lord. And this is where some people get it wrong. They just say, well, I became righteous the day I got born again. And I don't have to live, you know, circumspectly. I can just do my thing. No. We follow the example of Jesus. The righteous work that he has done in us should translate into righteous living being lived through us. And in other words, if, if God has really touched your life, demonstrate it by producing good fruit. If the righteousness of God has really impacted you, let there be fruit coming out of your life. Now here's a question, and I'm beginning to draw to a close. If we are righteous, then why do we sometimes slip up? If what the Bible says is true that we have been made the righteousness of God, why, why do we mess up sometimes? Why do we slip up? And that all has to do with our mindset. It has to do with our thinking that hasn't been renewed sufficiently. But we need to learn that we need to work together with God and our thinking will become more and more renewed more and more like the mind of Christ, so to speak. And we need to work together with God in this process of sanctification. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. And we have to realize that that is a process, but it doesn't change anything of our being declared righteous and the fact that we can still live in victory. I want to mention to you something here about a cycle of guilt and a cycle of grace. In terms of a cycle of guilt, what we find is that you end up messing up. You end up doing something that is wrong. And immediately what begins to happen is you feel terrible. Conviction begins to set in firstly. What happens next? Condemnation. What happens after condemnation? Confession. And then you feel better and you try again and then you mess up and you come into conviction. Condemnation. Confession. And this is this vicious cycle that many people are living in, this guilt cycle. 
And you're trying to do right, and you, you're trying your best to please God, but yet you find yourself messing up, and then you're into conviction, condemnation, confession, conviction, condemnation, confession, and this goes in a vicious cycle, and you can never get out of it. But you know what? There's an altogether different cycle, and this is called the grace cycle. And in the grace cycle, when you face temptation, or even on occasion, when you blow it, what you need to do is that you need to know Reckon and present. And that can be a whole new cycle where you know you are in Christ. You reckon yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God. And then you present yourself to God. And maybe a little bit later, temptation comes along again. And what do you do? You know, you reckon, you present yourself. You know, you reckon, you present yourself. You know, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You reckon yourself to be dead to sin. And then you are alive to God, presenting yourself alive. And let me tell you, that is a cycle of victory. It's a cycle of victorious living. And if you've been living in the guilt cycle, I want to say to you today, change your cycle. Move over to the cycle, which is the grace one, where you know you're in Christ. You reckon you're dead to sin and righteous, and you present yourself alive to God. And you are a living sacrifice unto Him. Isn't that exciting? that we can be free from that guilt cycle, and we can be in a cycle of grace. The scripture says in Romans 6, verse 11, on your screen, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Would you say the words, alive to God? In Christ Jesus our Lord, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't carry on with that sinful lifestyle because Imputed righteousness should lead to right living. And so I want to encourage you that you in a new way begin to see yourself as dead to sin. And when the enemy tries to come and trip you up, you say, no, 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 I am a righteous person. I am better than that. Thank you, Lord, that you helped me. I am in Christ. I can get over this thing that's trying to take me down. And I also want to encourage you, don't believe the lie that you can't live in victory while on earth. And sometimes you're thinking, well, it's only in heaven that I'll begin to live in victory. I want to tell you, you most certainly can live in victory through Christ who strengthens you. As we draw to a close, may I just ask you to say this after me out aloud. Say this. I have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus. I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. I am pleasing in His sight, and I am victorious in Christ Jesus. Now, would you give the Lord a hand of praise? And why don't you just say hallelujah for Christ our righteousness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And we thank you that long ago you planned to clothe us in these robes of righteousness. And we declare afresh that we are clothed in those robes and we will live with the mindset of that frame of reference. And we thank you for, that, for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, I bless your people. Would you just receive this as a blessing from the Lord? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his smile upon you and give you peace. And we all say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're free.